Hello, everybody. This is Sam Prue, Inclusion Hub podcast's host. I'm also the accessibility evangelist here at leading accessibility testing platform, Fable, powered by people with disabilities. And as we've discussed in several episodes, involving people with disabilities, not only in any meaningful conversation about equality and accessibility and inclusion, but regarding actual improvements that can be made as we move forward as a society, is absolutely critical. As many of our guests have stressed, the disability community must be included from inception. No overlay is going to fix the internet. No app is going to remedy decades of digital exclusion. In fact, such quick fixes only perpetuate and exacerbate the problem. And when we talk about true, meaningful accessibility and inclusion, we're talking about this throughout society, in healthcare, housing, transportation, digital access, and employment. I'd like to discuss the importance of that last facet for just a moment. October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month in the United States, NDEAM for short, and DEEM globally, created to celebrate the significant contributions of people with disabilities in the workforce, highlight inclusive employment policies and practices, and raise awareness about just how far we still have to go toward achieving true equality. At Fable, we believe that the best gateway to employment, especially in the tech sector, is access to skills. That's why Fable developed Fable Pathways, a training program created by people with disabilities for people with disabilities. And this month, we're launching a brand new training course with former Inclusion Hub podcast guest, Judy Human. All of our courses are free and available to anyone with a disability. Find out more at fablepathways.com. Now, the theme for NDEAM 2022 is disability, part of the equity equation. And I thought an incredible, meaningful way to highlight this oh-so-critical cause would be to share a special conversation I recently had with someone very special to me. You see, I happen to know somebody who spent more than three decades employed at one of the most consequential tech giants on the planet. And he's just one of more than a billion people in this world living with a disability, and about 50 million living with blindness. I am another. I'm also his son. My father, Reg, spent more than three decades at IBM, developing mainframe programs for some of Canada's largest banks, and premiering accessibility solutions to allow blind people to become programmers. And I'm honored to invite him onto the show for this important discussion, which, through sharing moments from his life and career, touches on so many pertinent aspects of these issues, from education, employment, and discrimination, to the ongoing quest for true accessibility and inclusion, evolving technologies that change the world, and so much more. Before we begin this two-part conversation with my father, I just wanted to mention that this podcast is made possible by its sponsors, InclusionHub.com's founding partners, leading CRM platform provider Salesforce, HubSpot Diamond Partner Agency, Mori Creative Studios, Fable, and Be My Eyes, a free app for the blind and low vision community connecting users with sighted volunteers, which my father and I both use and absolutely love. 
All right, let's get this started. This is a fun, fun experiment. I don't think uh, there are too many podcasts that are a father and son conversation. And I don't think there are any that involve people with disabilities or folks who are blind because it tends not to happen. And so, yeah, to, to give some background on this on this podcast, it's really about, as you may have seen from some of the outline and stuff, the history of accessibility and inclusion and accessibility advocacy with a focus on digital accessibility. Thought it would be the ideal conversation to have because I've been around talking computers for as long as I can remember because you worked at IBM for over 30, wasn't it like 33 years? 33 years I worked there. Yeah, which is quite some time. But before we dig into that, why don't we start a little bit further back at the beginning? Because we've been hearing a lot about discrimination and lack of access and the way that some of the advocates in the United States, like Judith Human, were inspired to advocacy by the discrimination that they experienced in, in education. And of course, you grew up in a tiny rural town as a blind person, and you were pretty quickly shipped off to a school for the blind that was like, what, a thousand miles away from home? That's correct. It was, uh, well, a thousand kilometers, which is uh, probably 700 miles. But really, in those days, you got to go home three times a year, and uh, you didn't talk to your parents. I mean, that was long distance. And I don't know if you remember, but like long distance was prohibitive, you know. So we used to call in the middle of the night or call on Sunday afternoon to try to get discounts. And even that was expensive. So we didn't talk to our families. Yeah. And so it was it was a boarding school experience, uh, perhaps that is, is not analogous to the boarding school experiences that people are having today where they are talking to their parents and, and, and things like that. But the School for the Blind, which was a W. Ross here in Ontario, because we're, we're out of Canada, was also maybe not what it should have been and not the experience uh, that, that was perhaps equal to the schooling that, that sighted people got from an education perspective as well. No, the, the education that we got, um, I had confirmed later on by a lot of the staff was actually, well, the way they termed it was we were 10 years behind in educationally, in, in practices. And I don't know how educators determine this stuff, but they thought that the way, the way we were taught was 10 years behind. Mm. But the, the, the education, they did what they, they could. I mean, there weren't a lot of Braille books and not a lot of literature and not, you know, so they kind of did what they could. But I think what's far worse and what contributed to uh, a lot more strife amongst the people that went there was the residence experience. Yeah, there was a lawsuit about that a while back. Yeah, there was. Yeah. And, and I, uh, fortunately, I had a good family. So I was damaged by it, but not irreversibly. But uh, I know in my graduation class, I did, after I graduated from there, I went up to Hearst, Ontario to uh, do my grade 13, which is really pre-university. And that, by the way, was a wonderful experience. It was a small town that had no discrimination. I can't think of any. Mm. Uh, it was absolutely wonderful. In fact, I even got a job. I was a dispatcher for a volunteer fire department. I had this job interview, 
And the town um, administrator, whatever you didn't really know what to ask me. And he goes, Well, can you tell time? And I went, Yep, it's 10 35. Oh, you got the job. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah. Maybe that says more to uh, what they were looking for in a fire department dispatcher in the 60s than, uh, than it, I don't know uh, if that would happen today, right? There's probably a lot more requirements for that. No, I, th- there was a lot of requirements for that. Uh, you had to know the town, yeah. But he knew I knew the town. Mm. Uh, you you had to speak French and English, and he knew I could do that. In fact, he couldn't speak French, but I could, and so he, you know, he knew that was fine. And so there were some requirements. I couldn't fill in the log books, but he knew enough about Braille that I could write it out so I don't forget, and then get the guy on net uh, the next shift to fill in. Uh, you know, in fact, most of the time we didn't have fires. I mean, uh, when I was on night shift, I would go down there and lie on a stretcher and put the red, big red phone uh, under the stretcher and I'd sleep and then I'd get up the next day and go to the beach. <laughs> now, when the phone did ring, you stood right up, man, you know, <laughs> but it, that was actually a wonderful experience for me because it, it demonstrated that, yeah, I could do stuff, you know, like I, I was hireable and it demonstrated to the town, yeah, they could accommodate me. Now, I didn't stay there because there's no future in that. Mm. It was a lumber town and there's not a lot of, so I did, really didn't stay there, but it was kind of a stopgap, a wonderful experience where I made a lot of friends and it it undid a lot of damage that the School for the Blind did. I realized that I could function as a uh, as a human being in a sighted community. I mean, there was no blind people there. Yeah, and even aside from the abuse that occurred, which you don't want to minimize it, but you were in a setting where all of your friends were blind and all the people you hung out with were blind, and suddenly being thrown into the sighted community again would be an adjustment. Well, yeah, you sink or swim, but I, I remember the first day of school, I was in there and I met a cousin. And he made me really feel welcome. And then everything went uphill from there. Yeah, it's the, the difference that one person can make, right? Oh, yeah, and you have to you have to make friends easily, which I do. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to build a schmooze. <laughs> well, that's a lot of it. That's what it is, you know, in schools. Yeah. You, you know, you hang out and you do bad things. I don't know. <laughs> oh, of course you do bad things. Come yeah, on. yeah. Um, that second adjustment, it sounds like, was a lot easier for you coming out of the School for the Blind than it was coming into the School for the Blind, because, of course, you started in grade one and you spoke French and got shipped off to an English school. Yeah, but that was okay. I was a big kid, you know, yeah. and I, I got put in there, couldn't speak a word of English, and I had a big appetite. Now, how do you ask for food? Well, I figured out that if you beat the crap out of the guy next to you and you take his food, then they'll give you some. <laughs> well, which, is, which is a terrible thing to do, but it's survival. I mean, I didn't hurt them too bad. I just got food. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's always, unfortunately, it seems like a physical component to, to self-advocacy in some cases. Uh, you know, all the protests and marches that happened in the States. So you, you came out, you got your first job, you were dispatched, and you realized there was no future in in that. So how did moving on happen? I mean, you ended up at, at university for computer science, but I mean, people with disabilities today find it hard getting into university for computer science. I couldn't do it. I mean, how did that 
happen? Well, during those days, the Ontario government, which is a province of Canada, had a wonderful rehab program. Mm. So I went for a whole bunch of psychological testing and it was just wild. It took like three days. And by the time I got through with it, I, I didn't know who I was, I think. But anyway, I, I went through all this and answered all their questions. And so they told me that if I got accepted at the university, I could stay there as long as I passed courses. They didn't tell me what to take. They said, well, you pick what you take. We'll give you so much a month, you know, kind of a, a, a living thing. The university was very good. Instead of making me pay by semester, they allowed me to pay by month for my residence fees, which, you know, so they were very accommodating. And so I went to university and I took a bunch of stuff because I didn't know what I wanted. Um, the psychologists or psychiatrists or whatever you want to call these guys, they weren't very helpful. They took me on the side and they said, well, we think you can do anything. <laughs> well, yeah, helpful. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and they're right. But, you know, kind of a jack of all trades professional at none. Yeah. So you got into computer science just sort of by default, or did you encounter a computer at university for the first time and realize, oh, this is going to change the world? No, I knew about computers at the time. I'd seen one, the big tape drives and all that. You know, they sound like a bunch of seals. You'd have to experience it, to, the reels of tape going back and forth. It's really something. But uh, what happened was I decided that I would take a computer science course just to see what it was about. Mm. It was absolutely miserable. It was inaccessible. It was punch cards. It was horrible. Mm. But I figured out for very simple programs, uh, you know, that I figured out how I could key punch. And then I would, I would, you know, get them to put the stuff through the card reader. And the kids were very good. They would read me my output and tell me what the errors were. And then I, I would have what's on the cards all written out in Braille so that I knew which card I could go and so I could modify it and all that. Now, that took a long, long time. Mm. So, so it made it difficult to keep up with assignments. But I'm kind of, um, I, I don't fail. I've never failed at anything. And so I wasn't going to fail at that either. And so I got talking to the professors and the university discussed this. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll do a little fundraising and we'll get you a Braille terminal. And they said, uh, we're not going to worry about how long it takes, mm. but you have to complete the courses, no matter how long it takes. Because they said, we're not, you know, we're not, we're not based on time, we're based on learning. And like, that was wonderful. So... You know, I went and got into computer science in my second and third year when the courses really got tough. The really difficult ones, I, in one case, the professor said, okay, uh, you have to take spring school. And while you're retaking spring school, you finish your assignments. Mm -hmm. And But because you're in spring school again, uh, you know, it, it's not going to be a free ride. You have to rewrite all the tests too. Uh, you know, so it, you're kind of taking one course and writing tests for two courses. Mm. So it's not it's not a gift, let me tell you. 
because computer science exams were difficult. But but I did that, and uh, and I would finish, and then got you know reasonable marks as compared to everybody else. Nobody did well in computer science. We used to do so horribly on exams that they would bell curve them. <laughs> yeah, which I think they still still do today. They probably still do. You know, it was a lot of sorting and searching and yeah. and that. And uh, in a lot of cases, uh, whereas uh, on a test, you would have to describe or, or draw the, an algorithm. Mm. You know, how, how do you do this search? You know, how do you do a binary search? How do you do, I forgot, but it's a whole bunch of them. Mm. You know, and what's a stack and a deck and ah, you know. Yeah. So I had one computer science professor who did a lot of my exams who, by the way, had been an IBM fellow. Okay. And he said, okay, he says, uh, you know, you, you could write all this stuff out in Braille. I, I'm going to get it all translated. You know, get, get, But that is expensive and it takes a lot of money. So I would stand in front of his desk and he would ask me questions. <laughs> and uh, so if you do an exam, you can um, be given a question and take five minutes to think about it. Well, not a chance. <laughs> not when you're interviewed orally like that. Mm. And so... It was very evident what I knew. And <laughs> yeah. so I would get halfway describing the algorithm anyways. Ah, you know this stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so so it wasn't a free ride. Mm. In fact, it was a lot less than a free ride because it was very difficult. But it was worth it because it, like it was a challenge for me. And I, uh, I thought I was going to actually fail a couple of times. Mm. I almost didn't make it. Mm. But I, well, you know, you persevere and finally I graduated. So the motivation for computer science is stubbornness, right? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. yeah stubbornness. Well. And I, I wasn't, I'm not interested in English or lit or I'm, mm. I'm just not, you know, I, I'm just not interested. I'm not a, I'm not an academic. Yeah. So you wanted to, to find I want, something. I want to do something that yeah. I could touch. Yeah. And Which in the early days was computers. Well, it still is. You think so? That hasn't changed? It's all software, and I mean, there's no big tape drives and hard drives. And Oh, well, yeah, but you weren't allowed to go in there, really. I mean, that was a very secure environment. I mean, I used to mm. go in there, but, uh, you know, you had to go in there very carefully. Mm. And so uh, what it was, was you would put your punch cards in the card reader, or in my, eventually we got these teletypes. So you'd be typing on a terminal and uh, they all worked in line mode. You know, you did everything in line mode. You had line editors and all that stuff. There was no screens. I think today it's more feely because you could pick up your la your laptop. You can take it apart. You can Well, you can't take it apart anymore. You used to be able to mm. take it apart. And... Uh, you know, there's a disk drive that you're aware of. Well, not anymore because they're solid state. Yeah. But but well, they used to be, you know. <laughs> yeah. So but, so it, yeah. it's it's changed, but not it's you know, it's still feely. Yeah. Even though I mean you used to have to care about how quickly you accessed the hard drive so it wouldn't break, whereas now you're writing a program in a programming language that's fifteen steps away from the hardware. No, that I, I didn't. Have, I, I did some, mm. uh, but I learned computer languages that were very hardware. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. this was computer science. Yeah. This wasn't some kind of business. Um, mm -hmm. 
You know, I talked to a guy from IBM one time and he said, well, he says, you're learning how to write compilers. And he says, uh, we only need five of them and we've got eight, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's the theory that's, that's important, but yeah, it, it all seems like it happened in part because of a government program, but a, a lot of, because of fundraisers and charity and, and volunteering and people willing to, to put in the extra time. And, now we have more programs, but it seems like maybe less of, of that is happening. I, I don't know. It, like what you did then in some ways feels like it's not, it's not happening today. And I wonder why. Oh, it, it's a question of work-life balance. Mm. We had a good grasp of work-life balance. We knew what it was. We knew when to work. We knew when to quit. We knew when to have a happy hour. And we were... We were kind of more co controlled and more stable. It didn't feel like that, but as compared to today, we were. And so people, not only if they liked you, they made time for you and they had time for you. Mm. And so if you were friendly and if you, if you did your part, mm. then it was, it's easy. And, you know, there's, there was very little discrimination. Well, we can talk about some of that later. There's always some, but there's yeah. a, there's ways of dealing with it. So, I, I really didn't wasn't discriminated against very much. Yeah, because you were likable and had the opportunities and and things like that, and the world moved a bit slower, maybe. Yeah, I wasn't going to fail either, mm. and they knew it. Well, yeah. I might have, but yeah, it's, yeah, the impression that people have of you because that didn't happen for a lot of other members of your high school graduating class, right? No. How, how many of them were employed? I mean, I got into Bitcoin and I still didn't fail. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But I made money, which uh, a lot of miners didn't. Yeah, but I mean, I guess I wonder what the difference is between the experiences that you had and the experiences that the rest of your graduating class had, because they all lived at that same time. Well, a lot of them were yes people. Mm. A lot of them did as they're told because maybe their spirits were broken a little bit, mm. you know, uh, maybe. But remember, I told you, like, I was a big kid. Yeah. And I, I started out fighting. And some of the nonsense that went around with stuff, I just didn't take it. Yeah. Physically, even so, I, I just wouldn't take it. Never mind. And so if you get somebody that'll bite back, then you don't bite. As simple as that. Well, I guess that about does it for now. Seems like a good spot to pause. We'll pick up this extraordinary father-son chat in recognition of Disability Employment Awareness Month in our next episode. Dad, I love you a ton. You know this. Thanks for joining us and sharing your experience with our listeners. And yes, I'll remember to take out the trash later, so there's no need to remind me for the 20th time. And to all you others out there, a huge thank you, as always, for listening and being a part of this continuing discussion about the disability rights movement and the ongoing battle for equality, accessibility, and inclusion for all. Once again, please check out inclusionhub.com to learn more about this podcast, peruse its directory of businesses dedicated to improving digital accessibility and inclusion, and much more. It's there you can also learn more about our sponsors, Inclusion Hub's founding partners, 
leading CRM platform provider Salesforce, HubSpot Diamond Partner Agency Mori Creative Studios, Fable, where I work, and Be My Eyes, a free app for the blind and low vision community connecting users with sighted volunteers, which my father and I both use and absolutely love. One final note to also visit fablepathways.com and check out those amazing courses I mentioned at the top of the show. Until next time, remember, a more accessible and inclusive world is a better world.